Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us this week. Over the last several years, a lot of attention's been paid, both in DoD and in Congress, to making investments in cyber ranges so that the military cyber teams can conduct exercises to help them prepare for actual attacks by sophisticated adversaries. But at least so far, there's at least one thing those ranges can't do. By design, they're isolated from the real world, so they can't show service members how the actions they take in cyberspace will affect the physical world. That basic gap gave cyber training experts in the Army and at the Sands Institute an idea. The Army already owns what amounts to a fully functional city that it uses for traditional military training events in southeastern Indiana. The Muscatatuck Training Center has a power grid, a simulated port, industrial control systems, lots of things a cyber attacker might target in a real-world event. Sands and the Army have been working on proofs of concept for cyber training scenarios at Muscatatuck, and several dozen soldiers from the Army's Cyber Protection Brigade are set to conduct the first full-up exercise there later this month. It's called the Sands Cyber Situational Training Exercise, or Cyber STX. We have two guests from Sands with us for the first part of the show this week. Ed Scotus is the Institute's Director for Cyber Ranges, and John Nix is the Director of Sands Federal Business. And thanks to both of you for joining us. And but before we talk about the actual training scenario, just to get us started, Ed, why don't you walk us through a little bit what this facility is actually like and, and how it's different from a traditional cyber range? Yeah, happy to go through it. So the U.S. military has a facility in Indiana called Muscatatuck. And uh, it consists of 400 acres where military personnel, law enforcement, some of our allies, they practice and they train. And uh, up until recently, the focus has been on kinetic action. That's where stuff moves. There's, uh, there's uh, ammunition involved. There's, there's people and forces. And uh, they do all kinds of different training there. They will, um, they'll train for hostage situations. They'll train for uh, military defense, military attacks, that kind of thing. And then over the last couple of years, there's been an increased interest in cyber action and how cyber action interacts with kinetic action. I mean, really kind of the future of warfare is where cyber action and kinetic action touch. And that's the kind of thing we've been looking at and building in this Muscatatuck urban environment. So talk a little bit more about exactly how you do that. Talk about the scenarios that you've been experimenting with and and then the new one that you're actually going to start putting soldiers through later this month. Sure. So we built uh, about two years ago our initial cyber mission over in Muscatatuck, and it was associated with a jailbreak. That is, the bad guys were hacking into uh, a prison system and getting into the the infrastructure of the prison system and causing mayhem, trying to agitate the prisoners, uh, ultimately resulting in a jailbreak. And that's where the bad guys open up the prison doors and and the prisoners uh, have a riot. The defenders, the good guys, they needed to stop that from happening. They needed to trace the, the bad guys as they were going through the environment and try to block their action. That's what we built two years ago. Our new mission that we have there is based on a deep water port. 
uh, you know, for shipping things with uh, port containers and cranes. In this scenario, the bad guys are trying to cause physical destruction by hacking into the cranes and starting to uh, cause them to move uh, and, and actually break things and break things down. So the defenders need to identify the attackers in the environment and try to stop their kinetic effects through cyber means. And really, when we put these missions together, we think about how boots-on-the-ground soldiers can interact with cyber operators to achieve a military objective more effectively than either of them could by themselves. And so in this case, are the good guys and the bad guys both members of the U.S. military and sort of a traditional blue team, red team setup? Maybe a better way to, uh, to, to describe it instead of good guys and bad guys, like I was just using, is to say attackers and defenders. And it's primarily military personnel uh, on the defense side. From the attack side, we do have some members of the military working, augmenting my team. My team traditionally plays the lion's share of what we call op four, right, the opposition force, uh, the attackers in the environment. But we are now involving more of the U.S. military on that side, too. So say a little bit more about uh, about what this actually gets you in terms of more effective learning. I mean, is, is, is the point more to simulate the physical environment that a real military operation would happen in? Is it is it more to, as you kind of alluded to earlier, show cyber soldiers the physical effects of, of, of what happens, what the consequences are of the keystrokes that they're that they're engaging in as part of uh, the cyber operations that they've already been training for? Yeah, it's kind of all of the above. I mean, the idea here is we need to have a very well-trained military, and we're putting them in situations or they're finding themselves in situations where cyber and kinetic touch. So the best way to prepare for that is to actually engage in training in a full-size, you know, life-size mission environment where you have boots-on-the-ground soldiers interacting directly with people with their fingers on keyboard trying to achieve mission objectives. And, and when we run these scenarios, it is, it is a full deployment. Uh, they're going to arrive in helicopters just as they would in an actual uh, mission deployment. They're going to you know, encamp there. They're going to work their way through the battle uh, each day reporting through their normal uh, reporting chain of command and structures, uh, following all of their uh, checklists and so forth. I mean, this is, the, the reason to do it is so they're ready when the time comes in reality, so they've been practiced in, in, the, in the whole scenario. Can you give me any sort of real-world examples of, of ways in which people who have gone through a process like this encounter circumstances that they wouldn't if they were in a sterile lab, traditional, you know, cyber range environment? Oh, absolutely. Um, when, when you do one of these things for real at full scale, stuff happens that you cannot anticipate um, on both the attack and the defense. We run a lot of these scenarios where it's just the fingers on keyboard piece, right? And, uh, you know, you'll learn a lot from that. That's all very well and good. But until you go up to the full scale, you can't really appreciate how all this stuff really comes together. Uh, the last time we ran an exercise there, we didn't anticipate how quickly the cyber protection team would deploy soldiers to the actual prison system itself. They went there early, and they did a complete inventory looking for everything that the bad guys uh, might have inside that environment. We didn't anticipate that. It served them very well uh, in being able to counter the actions of our attacker team. So when you actually get in the environment themselves, itself, you can see decisions get made 
of where you're going to deploy people, what they're going to be looking for, that you can't just do in a mock-up. And that's really vital. How, how scalable is this environment? I mean, how, how many members of a, of a CPT or, or cyber protection brigade can you actually cycle through um, just based on the physical constraints of the facility? Well, the first time we did this, we had 15 soldiers working through it. And that was small scale. That was an initial debut. Uh, we then expanded it to 20 soldiers, then 25. And for the next run that we're going to do just in a couple of weeks, it's going to be 40 soldiers. Now, the venue itself, as I mentioned, is 400 acres. It can support a lot more people. They will sometimes have kinetic exercises there involving hundreds of people. We are working to scale the cyber missions and practice up to that kind of scale. But right now we're at 40 people, which is more than double where we started. So in that you know, ramped up uh, exercise, or you might have multiple events happening at the same time, multiple different scenarios, I assume. That's what we've been talking about since day one here is could we have two or three or five different exercises uh, happening simultaneously and then you can rotate the soldiers in between them. So they might do this one for a day or two, learn a whole bunch of stuff and rotate them to the next one and then rotate them to the next one. That's been the vision since we started it. And uh, the idea there is they can get a lot more training benefit for one set of travel as opposed to having to go just for a couple of days and then again for a couple of days. It's, it's about trying to do it more efficiently. Throughout the process of developing the kind of early proofs of concepts and then eventually ramping up to this, this latest exercise that you're going to launch coming up uh, later this month, what, what, what's been the feedback from your DOD partners? What have they told you about what has been working and what needs to be changed uh, to make it more effective? Oh, we've gotten a lot of feedback. In fact, every time we run, run one of these things, we do an after-action review. And it's a half day where, uh, first of all, we prepare for it for a half a day, and then we sit down for a half a day and go over how everything went. Uh, the attack, the defense, lessons learned, how we, can we make it more real and more vital next time around. And one of the very specific requests we get is keep it real, make it more and more real, because we want to give these, these folks the, the actual sense of what a battle like this will be. So one of the big uh, takeaways that we've implemented is to model the specific actions of specific nation states, that is threat actors. Certain, certain attackers around the world will use certain techniques, certain means, certain technical mechanisms to get into an environment and to persist there. And uh, one of the big things in feedback we get is to make sure we're using the same techniques as specific threat actors. And that gives them a couple of uh, interesting things from that. First is it might help with some attribution, but even more importantly, they can maybe anticipate what the attacker will do next. In other words, if I know you're an attacker from a certain place in the world or who used a certain technique so far, I can anticipate better the techniques you might apply next and look for those. It gives an upper hand to them. So they want us to mimic those actions. That's Ed Scotus, the SANS Institute's Director of Cyber Ranges. Also with us is John Nix, the Director of SANS Federal Business. We'll come back and talk more about the Cyber STX exercise SANS is about to conduct with the Army at Muscatatuck in just a few minutes. This is on DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, talking with Ed Scotus and John Nix from the Sands Institute about Cyber STX. 
As we've been discussing, it's the first set of cyber training exercises the Army's conducted in a real, fully functioning city. And, Ed, basically everybody in DOD talks lately about this idea that that, that cyber is going to be a component of what we think of as traditional warfare, basically, from now going forward. And I don't know if this distinction is really meaningful that I'm about to make, but it, it sounds like a lot of what you're doing so far are cyber focused events and you know all, all the real action is happening primarily in cyberspace and i'm wondering if any of this approach that you're taking would make sense in an exercise where it really is a kinetic on kinetic battle that happens to have a cyber element that people need to be thinking about does that question make sense it does and that's exactly where we're trying to head with this because i mean the way things are going Every military mission, even the purely kinetic ones, will have a cyber component. And that's because all of your equipment, all of your, your munitions, everything is all computerized. It's all run by you know, computer systems that are networked together. And if you cannot maintain control of your computer systems, you really can't maintain control of your fighting forces. So you have a defensive component for every kinetic military mission. But it goes further. You also have an option of an offensive cyber component for every kinetic military mission. Um, and that's why cyber is just going to be part of, of all the missions going forward. And in fact, it's already that way now, keeping the defense of your own command and control and possibly interfering with your adversaries. So, uh, so this is a big deal. And right now, yes, you're right, our missions do have boots-on-the-ground soldiers, but with a heavy cyber focus. We want to gradually transition that into more general-purpose military missions. Um, getting back to the question of scale, um, you know, Muscatatuck sounds really cool, but uh, it's probably just physically not large enough to train the entire force, assuming this works as well as you guys think it's going to, and it turns out to be the wave of the future for cyber training. Are there other physical locations environments like this that, that the military owns that could be repurposed in this way, as far as you know? There absolutely are. There's a whole bunch of them at different places around the country. Uh, we are currently working with Miscatech because it's one of the largest and one of the most realistic with a lot of different kinds of infrastructures, but there are many others out there. Uh, my colleague John Nix might uh, want to give you some more details about those. Sure. Um... So two of them that come to mind uh, for this kind of full-scope multi-domain battle, um, as you alluded to, is uh, the National Training Center uh, out in California where they uh, do um, battle preparation before de deployments. They are certainly um, augmenting, if you will, uh, cyber capabilities into that fight. And then the other one that comes to mind is the, the JRTC or the Joint Readiness Training Center uh, in Arkansas. Those tend to be uh, kinetic force uh, focused, right? Armor, artillery, uh, aviation, infantry, mech infantry. Uh, and then they layer on the cyber, uh, as Ed alluded to, for the command and control. I would say that's in a, in a nascent stage right now. Um, the unique thing about Muscatatuck is it is the, war, it is the DOD's largest urban training center and it is a full-up uh, um, self-supporting city, if you will. It has its own, it has power generation, it has water treatment, it has a um, steam plant for heat. Um, so it mimics, uh, if not is, a real city. Uh, in the military, a lot of the urban training centers are mock-ups. They call them mount sites, where they're not much more than cinder blocks and roofs. 
So Skadiktuk for, for urban training is distinctly different uh, than those national training centers, which tend to be large open desert areas uh, so that the maneuver elements can move around with their heavy equipment. Yeah, I was just does that about makes sense? Yeah, it does and I was just about to raise that point actually cuz it seems to me ideally if you want to have a a really good simulation here, you want you want your training environment to have all the cyber vulnerabilities of a real city like water treatment plants, like SCADA systems and power grids that can be attacked by an adversary, right? Yes, I think if you talk to folks in the DoD, you will uh, you know, urban environments are becoming more and more the focus of uh training the future force. We, we as a nation believe that the future battles will, will be in uh, densely populated urban areas that will have uh, certainly a huge component of, of cyber or uh, now the Army calls it SEMA, uh, layering in the electronic warfare on top of that. So to, to that regard, Muscatatuck is unique in what it brings to the table. Uh, what what it, what we have out in NTC uh, is nothing like Muscatatuck. There's no urban training uh, component, right? That's more uh, desert and high, you know, high desert plateau mountain type stuff. Yeah, and John, since you raised electronic warfare, are, are you guys starting to think about how to incorporate uh, spectrum dependent effects into these exercises? There are ways to deliver cyber effects through any electromagnetic um, medium, <laughs> as we're learning. Um, I think we're on the very leading edge of that. I, I know that the Army is looking at it uh, at the CCOE down at Fort Gordon pretty heavily, um, but that is not something that we are uh, currently exercising out at uh, Muscatatuck. Now, interestingly, uh, Muscatatuck is actually an EW range. Uh, so they have an EW range layered on top of the city, uh, as well as some restricted airspace where they can bring, for instance, uh, unmanned systems uh, to bear. Uh, but uh, we we are not uh, training that yet. Right. But in the future, perhaps, um, there's a lot of interesting electronic warfare capabilities when uh, bundled together with cyber, um, you know, things as simple as just uh, signal jamming. Um, could cause all kinds of problems for cyber attacks and, and be a counter against that. So these are something that we're having initial discussions about, but it is, uh, it's in the future. I spent some time in the Army and uh, had the, had the uh, benefit of going out to NTC uh, more than once. And what was interesting about uh, in those days, and that's some decades ago before cyber was a thing, electronic warfare was a big um, component of this combined arms uh, um, defense and attack. And what was interesting about the EW guys is at the beginning of the battle, when EW would be, would be brought to bear on the battlefield, it would shut things down, and literally to the point where they said, okay, uncle, turn the things off because we still have to do our battle. Mm. Um, but what, what resonates with me is we, we're not there yet with cyber. Right, and we don't we don't incorporate cyber perhaps into these full scale operations because cyber could also be so disruptive that literally you would not be able to meet the objectives of the exercise. And so part of uh, part of the the, the uh, pensiveness, if you will, or the the um, reluctance to allow the cyber forces to really demonstrate what could be done in a uh, multi spectrum uh, battle is is they don't want to be brought to their knees, basically. 
because you still got to train. Yes, well, you know, you want to train to fight, but uh, when you bring the whole thing to a grinding halt, that that doesn't get much training done either. Right. Uh, it's an interesting, you know, it's, it's it's always that tension going into an exercise because they're so so terribly uh, expensive to put on. Uh, it doesn't get much training done if the whole thing gets shut down. That's John Nix, the federal director at the Sands Institute, along with Ed Scotus, Sands director for Cyber Ranges. They joined us to talk about the upcoming Cyber STX exercise at the Army's Muscatatuck Training Center near Butlerville, Indiana. We'll post more information about Cyber STX and what Sands calls Cybertropolis at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. Another short break, and when we come back, peeling back the onion a little bit further on DOD's use of other transaction authorities to speed up R&D and technology projects. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbio. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we switch gears from cyber training to DoD spending, amid the growing popularity of other transaction agreements in the Defense Department, military services and agencies have spent nearly $6 billion via OTAs. But DoD procurement officials have left themselves room for a lot more. When you add them all up, the total ceiling value of DoD's existing OTAs is $50 billion. That's according to a new analysis by Bloomberg Government. Chris Cornilli is a federal market analyst at BGov, and he joins us now to talk about the trajectory of DOD's OTA spending. And Chris, there's lots of good data in your piece, but I think maybe the most interesting thing you did was to compare the total ceiling value of all the OTAs DOD has out there against what it's actually obligated for individual projects. So, so let's start there if we could. Tell us what you found in terms of how much value is actually left on these things. It's uh, great to be with you, Jared. Um, yeah, as you said, I think we're, we're trying to figure out both what the two-date spending has been, but also figuring out what that potential pipeline could be. Looking at strictly active OTA contracts, so these are things that had a that were still in effect as of August 7 when, when we were looking to publish the piece, the Pentagon has spent about $5.8 billion uh, on OTAs. And some of these uh, go back as far as, as 2014 and earlier. But when you look at the, the grand scheme of, of how much they could spend over the next 10 or 20 years, the ceiling value of those OTA contracts, especially with the consortia, is closer to $48 billion. And actually, with uh, the launch of a new OTA late last week, it's, it's now $50 billion. And as far as those ceilings, is, is there, this is probably a better question for the government than for you, but does there seem to be any rhyme or reason to the, the values of those ceilings, as far as you could tell? Because I think normally when we have multiple award contracts in the traditional procurement space, for lack of a better word, the ceilings usually bear some relationship to what the government kind of thinks it'll spend over a given period. These OT ceilings seem to be pretty round numbers, like $100 million here and there. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think, um, you know, in, in this case, these are long-running, um, you know, open contracts. And I think the without really knowing how much the, the Pentagon would need over you know, a 10 or a 20 year lifespan, I think they've given themselves a little bit of running room. Now, that, that's not to say that uh, something like the, the Pentagon's $10 billion OTA with the Consortium for 
for countering weapons of mass destruction. That's not to say that that couldn't generate, you know, half or more of its value over uh, over 10 years, something like $5 billion. Um, but I, I think that um, it's not necessarily the case that the, the Pentagon will spend all of that money. I think it's being a little bit cautious. Okay. And so switching back to actual obligations under these very large ceilings, you also found that spending uh, in, in 2017 alone had increased pretty dramatically from the year before, right? Yeah, that's correct. So we uh, found that the Pentagon alone had spent $2.1 billion uh, via OTAs. Uh, and that's kind of in, in contrast to $1.4 billion in fiscal 2016, so a, a 50% jump year over year. Um, I think for Pentagon watchers, that's a, a, a strong signal that this is going to be an approach that the federal government is going to use, uh, it, you know, certainly in 2018 and 2019, to get access to those emerging technologies faster than they can through the, the typical FAR process. Yeah, and, and I, I'm just curious, that makes me think of the time of the year that we're in right now, which is when people are generally scrambling to get money out the door, and it seems like OTs might be a fairly attractive vehicle to do that since they do require less of a paperwork burden. I'm just wondering if you noticed any trends in past years where OT a actual outlays under OTs tended to go up in the final months of a fiscal year. So I will say we, we don't have data on that specifically, but uh, the federal government does tend to obligate about 40% of its IT spending in September alone. So as you said, uh, OTAs offer the Pentagon a way to spend quickly uh, with fewer strings attached. And, and so I would agree with you that it's, it's probably likely that uh, there are some OTAs to be awarded in, in September of this year. And Chris, one of the other things you found was that, uh, similar to what we found when we looked at this question a few weeks back, was that uh, big traditional prime contractors are among some of the biggest winners anyway from this this new OTA, OTA trend, at least so far. Yeah, the, that, that's correct. Um, one thing we try to do is, is stack up uh, how much consortia, like those managed by uh, ATI, which is Advanced Technology International, are winning versus uh, companies like Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman uh, and Boeing. And uh, those those last three are in, are in the top five uh, with about 350 uh, million, 270 million, and 260 million uh, on on active contracts. Now, uh, it's it's a small share of the revenue that uh, a consortium manager like ATI has won. So that's about $2.7 billion on active contracts. However, you don't really know how much these traditional large defense contractors uh, are receiving indirectly through their participation in consortia. And that's something that uh, the, the Pentagon uh, has not been very transparent about for a few reasons. Yeah, and another point on that we should just make clear to listeners that it's not like that $2.7 billion to ATI is all revenue to that particular consortium management firm. It's it's the contract to the consortium, really, and then ATI is going to divvy that up in ways that we will probably never see, right? Uh, that That's correct. Um, I, I will say there have been some public statements about uh, how that money is being spent, um, but it, it's kind of on a, uh, a self-reported basis. But you, you are correct that it, it is not money directly to this company. It's to the, con 
to the consortium, but it, it is reported as to the consortium management company in this case, ATI. Right, and I think in some cases there are there are examples of consortiums that that report things a little bit differently because I think in some cases at least these consortiums, or really the government, will report individual awards, and in some consortiums they will not. You will only see that top line number ever. Is that about right? You know, I think it it really varies depending on the the consortium. With one I've spoken to, they've they've been a little bit more transparent in what the breakdown is um, in awards made to traditional versus non-traditional companies and what that revenue share is. Um, with others I've spoken to, uh, they uh, they can really only give me a ballpark figure, and what they've said is that the Pentagon does not allow them to disclose those numbers uh, publicly. So it, it it really does depend. Bigger picture, Chris, um, having gone through this project of trying to figure out exactly how much OT spending is going on out there, how difficult was it to get at that data compared to if you had tackled something that was really made up entirely of traditional FAR-based procurements? Well, I think it, in some ways it's, it's easier because you um, our tool allows us to tap into all of the spending made using a, a particular product code. Um, and so... Uh, for us, at least, it's been we, we've been fairly able to get get our heads around it. Uh, it in other ways, uh, because OTAs uh, tend to be uh, reported through FPDS, um, unlike a lot of uh, classified spending that you wouldn't have seen uh, if the if the federal government had gone through an alternative approach. But on the other hand, you know there is that black box with uh, how spending is is being used through consortium. So it, in, in some ways it's easier and in others it's more difficult. Hmm. All right, Chris, and one thing we haven't hit on yet is that there, there's at least a couple main ways that DOD can award these OT, OT agreements. One is to the consortia that we've already talked about and some uh, some in some cases, like I think DIUX has taken this route primarily is direct to individual firms. What tends to be the, the dominant method that the, the department has been using over the past few years? Well, I think there's been uh, a a mix of both both direct to companies and through consortia. Certainly there have been um, a larger number of smaller awards made direct to the companies, uh, as you mentioned, through DIUX and now DIU and, uh, and other institutions. Um, but the, the awards to the consortia tend to be fewer in number and uh, larger uh, in terms of each transaction. So in terms of active contracts, you have about $3.8 billion in OTA spending going to the consortia uh, and $1.9 billion going direct to companies. But if you, if you think about it in terms of the, the grand scheme of, of the Pentagon's OTA pipeline, um, the, these awards tend to be, uh, to, to the companies themselves, tend to be well-defined where they're uh, for a short period of time, maybe a year or 18 months, versus the consortia, which are 10 to 20-year vehicles. And as a result of that uh, $48 billion in remaining value, uh, about $41.3 billion are through the consortia. So um, kind of looking long-term, I think you're going to see the consortium uh, as, as the, the principal recipients of this funding. Did you happen to, did you, were you able to get at how how much of this, within either the total ceiling value or actual outlays, how much of the money was going to prototypes versus that new follow-on production authority that the government has? 
Sure. So uh, the the vast majority is going to be going toward these these prototypes and uh, early stage, bleeding edge development type projects. Um, the only production OTAs that I'm aware of were the ones made to Tanium uh, for you know Internet of Things security uh, for uh, that had a ceiling value of about 750 million versus uh, and then also the the second. POTA contract, which was to uh, RainCloud, and that was the highly controversial contract that um, has since been terminated after being um, ruled against by the Government Accountability Office. So, to my mind, uh, there are really the only two, but you know that that doesn't mean that it won't be used in the future. Probably with more caution after the the RainCloud debacle, but it, it won't mean that it'll be the end for the OTAs. That's Chris Cornilli, a federal market analyst at Bloomberg Government. We'll post a link to his analysis on OTAs in the Defense Department at federalnewsradio.com. One last break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about a different aspect of DOD procurement, the way the department buys commercial goods and services. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 a.m. I'm Jared Serdue. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And for more than 20 years, Congress has been trying to get the Defense Department to buy commercial items instead of military unique ones whenever it can. Nonetheless, in at least some cases, DOD's process for buying commercial items can take even longer than its traditional procurement system, partly because the process of deciding whether something is commercial or not can be difficult in and of itself. The Government Accountability Office says DOD could improve matters a lot just by sharing more information across its own acquisition workforce. Bill Woods is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at GAO. He joins us now to talk about some of those information gaps. Just to set things up, let me start by asking you to explain just a little bit when a contracting officer is setting about the whole process of making a commercial item determination, what sorts of information does he or she need? Certainly, Jared. The um, most important information is marketplace information, and that can be obtained through a variety of means. Uh, Online searches, uh, for example, uh, trade books, um, uh, talking to uh, vendors, uh, attending uh, conventions and and, uh, business meetings in some cases. So there are a variety of means for contracting officials to obtain enough information to be able to decide whether the item they're interested in purchasing is a commercial item. And the point here is I understand the whole commercial item process is it's supposed to be faster, it's supposed to be more streamlined, contractors should theoretically want to be in that process, but it seems like the way things are now, there is so much time made, in in some cases at least, making these determinations that they can be actually slower than a traditional FAR Part 15 acquisition in some cases. Well, that was the concern uh, and the reason that we did the work is that uh, the purpose, as you point out, for buying commercial, and this is a process that's been um, going on for um, many decades. The, uh, we have been trying to move towards a more commercial environment because we know that uh, in many cases the items are cheaper uh, and they have been market tested so that we know that uh, uh, there's a certain amount of market acceptability, the items work as intended, 
there's customer acceptance uh, of the item. So there's a lot of advantages for the government side to, to buying commercial. And for the most part, uh, the government's doing a pretty good job of that. Uh, a lot of what we buy these days are commercial items. But as you point out, there are a number of instances where it's not so easy. And we set out to try to uh, understand why that is the case. And we asked a number of people, give us your hardest case. Give us those cases where it did take uh, an extraordinarily long period of time, or at least longer than you uh, anticipated to buy a commercial item. And our purpose was find out why. What were the factors that contributed to taking so long? And we did were able to identify uh, four factors that made it take longer than it should have. Yeah, so let's talk about those a little bit more. What were the issues that seemed to keep coming up? Well, uh, the first one was just the availability of marketplace information. Um, for standard uh, commercial items, things you might uh, uh, purchase online, there's plenty of uh, uh, market information available in terms of the features of the product or the, the quality, and there's uh, customer ratings, and that sort of thing. But for a number of things that the Department of Defense buys, uh, spare parts in particular for aircraft engines, there is not that kind of marketplace information. Uh, so in the absence of that, that, that's one factor that made it more difficult. Another factor is the uh, ability or the willingness of contractors to provide information. And the key that we found there was a lot of the information that the government was asking for from the prime contractor, the prime needed to get that information for the, from the subcontractor. And in many cases, the subcontractor was uh, not very willing to provide that. And the key reason and that is that in today's transaction, or the, the one that the contracting officer on the government side is dealing with, the prime and the contractor are in a cooperative relationship. But tomorrow, they might be competitors. So the subcontractor is, in some cases, unwilling to provide key information to the prime contractor that, as I said, tomorrow can be its competitor. The third factor that we identified was modifications to an item. The commercial item definition in the statute allows for minor modifications. That's a pretty standard practice in the, in, uh, the commercial world for items to be modified to meet a uh, particular customer uh, need. But every time you do that, it changes the pricing structure. Uh, it changes the market acceptance factor. So it's not quite the same item that, uh, that you're purchasing that provides a, another element of uh, complexity. And then the last thing is, um, in some cases, a prior commercial item determination uh, may have been inaccurate. So a contracting officer looks back three, four, five years, sees that an item was uh, obtained commercially, but today things may be different. So those are the four factors that we identified that makes this a, a somewhat complex process. Yeah, and that fourth one is interesting to me, and, and, it, and it strikes me that it's probably somewhat common because it's, it's not that hard, especially in the technology arena, to imagine a scenario where a commercial vendor may have sold, let's say, a cell phone, a smartphone commercially, but by the time the DoD procurement cycle catches up with it, it is no longer on the commercial marketplace, even though DoD is still procuring it. That's a, that's a great example. And, and there, we found um, dozens of uh, similar examples where the market just changes so quickly uh, that, as you said, an item 
uh, bought commercial is is no longer no longer being sold. I've buried the lead a little bit in, in asking my question so far, but the point of the report really is DOD can overcome a lot of these problems, hopefully, by just sharing more information from contracting officer to contracting officer. And you found that they've gone some way toward doing that with this new uh, commercial item group at, at DCMA, the Centers of Excellence, a new database there. What, what, what kinds of information are they sharing so far and what could they do to improve? They do have a system in place, but they are just at the beginning stages of that uh, of developing that system. One of the primary shortcomings is uh, right now for a lot of items, the information available on that database only goes back to 2016. And in some cases, there's very rich information available uh, prior to that, but the system just does not capture that. So it needs uh, it needs to be uh, fleshed out a little bit and uh, uh, developed further. There's also no uh, agreement within the department about who's going to maintain the system, about who's going to pay for it, and those are uh, everyday bread and butter issues that need to be fleshed out in order for the system to uh, to proceed. And Bill, I want to pivot quickly to a related report that you guys also issued last week, which is on the, the government's upcoming e-commerce portals, which is sort of the new wave of how to buy commercial items, well, not just in DOD, but across the government. What are the some of the potential implications to, to watch going forward as the government starts to implement that way of buying commercial items through this Amazon-like marketplace structure? Well, as, as you say, the um, what we've been talking about up to here is sort of the old way of doing business, uh, of, of trying to make item-by-item determinations uh, about whether it's commercial, about making uh, individual determinations about what you're paying for, a, uh, whether you're paying a fair price. What this e-commerce portal is all about is really trying to uh, accelerate that process greatly of trying to move the government into an existing robust system. Many consumers these days go to the online first, and then they may go to the, uh, to the brick and mortar. GSA and the uh, Office of Federal Procurement Policy are trying to move the government to a more of an e-commerce uh, check the portal first environment. In order to do that, they need to uh, create systems that are going to work for every agency across the government, that are going to work for the thousands, if not millions, of commercial items that the government buys every year. So it's a real challenge. Bill Woods is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at GAO. We'll post a link to the report we've been talking about at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. Also at that link, you'll find the full audio of this week's program, including our earlier discussions with Chris Cornilli from Bloomberg Government about the data behind DOD's spending on other transaction agreements, and our two guests from the SANS Institute about the upcoming Army Cyber STX exercise, one of the first training events the Army's conducted in a fully functioning city. You can also listen via our podcast. If you're not already, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Servu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD with Federal News Radio DoD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DoD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Thank you.